Welcome to the Man on Second Podcast on the Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Joe Fusaro, and um, once again, our, our network is growing. We're we're striving to get you, you audience, the, the best guests and the best information we can. And uh, our mission, as always, is to raise the baseball IQs of our listeners. And if we don't do that today, we failed, and I know we will because we have a really special guest, Marty Mayer. Marty is a longtime scout at over 40 years in the sport, the pro level. He's done about everything, 24 or so years with the with the Cardinals, the past dozen or so with the uh, Cincinnati Reds. Marty has uh, retired. We'll get into that. But before we get to Marty, you're going to bring in Dave D'Agostino, and he's going to make some uh, announcements. Right, yeah, and we all know scouts never retire. They're always looking for talent out there. <laughs> but uh, to, our, to our 10,000 subscribers, we're up to 10,000 now as of this morning. Uh, we try to maintain an ad-free, sponsorship-free environment. That makes us beholden to nobody. But you got to make sure you download, listen, like, and subscribe. You can even leave us notes. They don't even have to be nice notes. Just leave us notes so we know where to go with the show. Um, and we can keep bringing you this type of content that Joe brings with Man on Second as part of the Real Voices of the Game Productions. If you so feel like it, please go to uh, Pratian.com. And you can donate to the show directly, Man on Second. They'll all go to Joe here to help him continue to bring on top-notch guests like we have with Marty today with great content, building better baseball IQs. And also continue to follow us, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The guys got me to get on Facebook and Instagram. It's going really well with it, so continue to follow us there. And, and Joe, with that, uh, I had a great talk with Marty before the show started. That could have been a, a show in itself, so I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, yeah, I am too. A uh, quick background on Marty. Uh, he's been a scout, uh, a Latin American uh, coordinator, assistant director uh, of scouting, a scouting director, a special assistant to the GM. What hasn't he done? Welcome, Marty Mayer. And uh, Marty, how you doing, buddy? I'm well, Joe. Joe, David, glad to be here with you. Yeah, kind of kind of talk a little bit. Why now? Why did you, you choose to kind of say that was it after, you know, more than a 40-year run in the game? Well, you know what, Joe, really, I felt like in the last couple of years of what we're doing and how the game has changed, uh, the game of what I was doing, the job as a special assistant to the GM, and really uh, being responsible for certain teams uh, at the higher end, the uh, major league, AAA, AA, the guys that are closer to the big leagues, Having several of those teams, you know, um, it just got uh, to the point where they keep adding and adding and giving you more and more. And the days got longer and longer. And uh, you just only had so much time to go to sleep, basically. It just got to the point for me where uh, with the change of schedule, too, after COVID, uh, you know, they went to the schedule of uh, starting every a Tuesday, and you had uh, uh, six games schedules uh, with, you know, a lot of clubs going to six-game starters. And uh, so they were saving money and really by not moving people around, trying to adjust the uh, schedules uh, to match players up. So you really left every, you know, you left every Monday, you come back, uh, left every Tuesday, you come back every Sunday night. and. Um, People don't realize, you know, they say, you know, wow, you got a great job. All you do, you know, go to baseball games, you know, which is true, you know, and it is a great job. The side they don't see is waking up, you know, in the morning and having breakfast in a hotel somewhere and start writing the pictures that you saw the night before. If you didn't do that after you came home from the game at the uh, 10 30 or 11 o'clock at night which a lot of people do um and so it was just a constant uh and you did that your your schedule was like that every single day uh you went home uh on the week uh, for one day and you turned around and went back out and for me it just got to the pace of it was the additional teams we added more teams with less scouts 
And so the coverage was getting more and more. So I went from writing virtually as a, as a scouting director, a hundred reports a year, or as a national cross checker to writing five, six, seven, 800 reports a year. And I didn't take typing in high school and I regretted (laughs) that. So Uh, I was pecking my way to death for many years, but, uh, there's a lot of good things about it, but that was that was one of the more things. Uh, one of the things uh, that I thought also that, you know, I've got uh, three kids, 22, 26, and 32 in there. Um, and I wanted to spend more time with them. I just, they're grown up and they, they, they never got to see me, basically, except uh, seeing me at games or traveling with me, uh, my wife. But uh you know, they're all grown up pretty much now. We're wanting to do a lot of things that we uh, didn't get to do earlier. Yeah, just so, so our audience knows what Marty is talking about, uh, there are many levels of scouting. There's an amateur side that kind of does the, the the high school and the college guys and do the draft. And then you have on the, on the pro side uh, the scouts that are doing the minor league affiliates of these teams. And, uh, you know, and, and full disclosure, I have a son who's a scout with Arizona and he does the schedule that Marty was saying. He, you know, he would, you know, wherever he'd go, let's say he was going to Birmingham for a week, uh, he would get there and whatever team he was looking to, to covering or the targets, he would be there from like Tuesday till Sunday, like Marty said. They just, like Marty noted, after COVID for to cut down travel, they'd play like five, six straight days. And one of the po- positives is you can see all the pitchers because you see the whole rotation, but you're literally in that city then you fly home for a day, you pretty much do your laundry, and you're back on the road the next the next day, and you're doing that for months on end. So that's kind of what Marty was getting at of uh, just the the schedule of of and the pace that these scouts put, you know, you know, they they do. And you know, I'm highly partial to scouting, uh, not only just because my son, but you know, it's always been even a long time covering this sport. I believe scouts are still the players are the game. But I think the scouts are kind of the lifeblood of how the game is evaluated and run. And uh, speak to Marty how the game is the the, the role of scouting has changed. Uh, n- not alone, you know, just you know the hassles and the hustle of seeing everybody, but just you know how has it changed as 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 an industry in the last ten, five, ten, and even twenty years. Oh yeah, I mean it's changed dramatically. You know, I mean I go back to I can go back even further when I started as an area scout. Is uh, as far as uh, amateur scouting, you know, you had uh, a scouting director and maybe another guy that would come in and look at your players. Um, so as as a young scout starting out, basically I I had one guy, Fred McAllister, who's a scouting director, who'd come to Florida to see my players. I had all of Florida and Alabama. And he would come in, look at my players, and he'd spend seven days with me. So he'd say, he would say, put the better schedule, the best schedule you could put together for seven days. And I could have seven number ones. And he would leave and say, put the rest of these guys behind him. So my second round, third round, fourth round guys, they were all on me. There was nobody else cross-checking. So what it did for me was I found out doing scouting, I, I grew up that way, which was great way to learn because there was nobody telling me that this guy was good or bad. I had to do it totally on my own. So when I had some success early on drafting players that nobody saw, then I really believed I could do this job. I could do it for a long time. So the way the difference uh, in professional scouting and also, Joe, as you really know, back then, you were there was no professional scouts. The amateur scout did the professional job. There was no summer work. There was no chasing down uh, the tournament teams or whatever, you know, uh, these teams in the summer, you just went to work and, you know, you did all your pro work in the summer. And then you start over in the fall again with your amateur work. So you didn't have pro and scouting. But as far as a, a, a scouting, pro scouting, it's just, it's just changed dramatically as far as you have a, a lesser number of professional scouts and you have 
uh, much more responsibility and teams to cover because we didn't ever scout the uh, complex leagues or the rookie leagues too much because those guys were not going to be eligible. We weren't taking guys like that in a draft. I mean, in a in a deal. So we basically scouted a ball enough. They, you know, there wasn't, you know, the scouting now. They're, 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 we're looking at guys that are, they're just signed out of college. They're going playing in a, a complex leagues and on the backfields. And uh, we're getting you're writing reports about everybody. And basically, yeah. back then you used to write reports on guys you liked, you know, guys you that you uh, have interest in, as opposed to writing up every single player that. You know, because you're writing up 85 percent of them can't play, or guys that you don't think will become major league prospects. No, there's no doubt, and I think that's that's kind of lost in the that, that right now. And I, I find it interesting because as a as a the younger baseball fan is very analytically driven because they get a lot of information from fan graphs or or um, Statcast, and as you know, Marty Lawson worked 18 years with MLB.com and was there when when Statcast launched in 15. And but they're they're kind of defining players at a low level, like you know the the complex level. <laughs> they think if a guy hits 300 at at 17, 18, 19 years old in the complex level, he's a 300 hitter in the big leagues. But what yeah. I think a lot of these fans are re- missing is. Everyone who makes it to the big leagues pretty much was a 300 hitter at some level, right? <laughs> but not everybody that makes it to the big leagues is a 300 hitter. You know, they're guys that, you know, and, you know, I hear this from scouts that I've known forever, guys like you. And, and you know, you see a lot of guys that'll hit 350 in the minors and, and I'll talk to a scout and the guy goes, this guy can't hit. And, um, but they'll get a little carried away. But what they may miss on is a bad swing or, you know, he's uh, ahead of, the pitching in that league. And there's a lot that goes into identifying an impact, not just a big leaguer, but an impactful big leaguer. And, and that's why I hope we kind of shed some light in this conversation, Marty, just kind of remind people that you can't, the the number doesn't always meet the projection, meaning the stat. Without a doubt, without a doubt, because there's so much more involved that these guys are trained in so differently now than the way we were trained as players, uh, coming up. And uh, so it's it's been a learning process for me trying to learn more over the last maybe 10 years of, of uh, statistical information and trying to, you know, grasp what they were doing and, and basically talking to people like uh, my boss, Walt Jockety, when with the Reds, when I was over there, uh, who brought me over there, uh, initially about what you want me to do. And Walt's like, you just do the job you've been doing all along. I don't want you chasing down the stat of these, trying to figure out what all this stuff means, you know. And, you know, the, the obvious stuff we've looked at for years. It's like we never looked at stats. We looked at averages. We looked at RBIs. We didn't look have the information or the, the formulas that they have uh, or a computer to do that, you know. Uh, back then so it was basically your eyes and information and so much was a lot a lot to do with was the makeup of the players and who they are and what they're about and that's a key part that statistical analysis has zero content for me is who is this guy how bad does he want to play what does it mean to him to what kind of work ethic he has where do you get that information no, the eyeballs get that. Scout. Yeah, the scout yeah. gets that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, because he can say, hey, I walk into the manager's office. I say, hey, Joe, what about Joe Dokes over here? I seen that guy. He wasn't hustling and this and that. You know, I mean, he's jogging down to first base every time. What What's up with that guy? Well, you know, he's a high draft pick and. You know, we can't really jump on his ass now because he's, you know, he's. Uh, yeah. He's, you know, he's a little temperamental or this and that. And that, you know, that stuff is, you know, that's where the game has changed dramatically. The way we, you know, really take, coddle these kids coming up. And I think it was a rougher game back then. But uh, like, uh, you know, the guys you've had on, guys like Jim Cott and people, uh, you know, like that, the way they learned the game and the way they taught the game, it, the game was basically told to me by one of my great 
uh, people of uh, this George Kissel with the with the Cardinals, who was uh, my great men, uh, one of my great mentors, him and Fred McAllister, who was the scouting director. George was the farm director, and basically he said, "Hey, the game hasn't changed. Did I'm still teaching these kids how to play the way I taught uh, Kenny Boyer how to play, the way I taught uh, Kurt Flood or all these other guys how to play." And that's where it is. It's it's totally different. It's totally different in that sense as far as how the game is run and how the manager has to manage. So you can't use a lot of the same things that you used to use uh, in evaluating players because of that. No, a great point. It's, Marty, I think let's, let's zero in on pitchers. Mm-hmm. You know, and I remember back um, – I'm going to mention his name, and you probably remember the pitcher, Logan Logan Kensing. He was yeah. in the Marlins system back in about 04, I believe, was the year when the Marlins were trying to, you know, get back to the playoffs after winning the World Series in 03. And they they had one of the hurricanes came through South Florida, and it forced the Marlins to play like a double header against the Cubs up in uh, Chicago, which would have been a home game for the Marlins, but because of the weather, and it was, it was September series and the Cubs and Marlins were basically fighting for, you know, a wild card spot. And so you had this makeup double header and the Marlins bring up Logan Kensing from a ball. He has to make the leap to play at Wrigley field in the day game. And he's like completely overwhelmed <laughs> by, by the Cubs. Wrigley's going nuts. I think he gave like a first inning homer to, to Alou. And I think uh, Aramis Ramirez tagged him, and, and you could just see, it really impacted Logan's career, you know, in terms of confidence because he got shelled and th- that first game didn't go the Marlins way to say the least. But McKeon kind of, Jack McKeon kind of noted that Kensing was being promoted a lot because he had a good fastball that was dominating high A ball at the time, mm-hmm. but he didn't have the secondary pitches. Right. So, you know, you could see, and I don't mean to single out Logan because I, every now and then I bump into him up in Jupiter. But, you know, the career never took off. And we do harm because we're almost afraid for the – like the player oh – if the player knows I got a good fastball or two-pitch mix when you need three to be a starter or at least three at the big league level, they don't develop it enough. They get rushed. And and then, you know, it's really hard up in the big leagues because eventually you don't have more than one or two pitches. The hitter is going to zero in and get you. Right, right. No, it's, it's, it's totally different now because – Back then, I mean, I mean, I was with Kansas City with Bill Fisher and got around him a lot. Uh, I was with the Cardinals with Dunk, and he, you know, I spent a lot of time with the pitching people because you know what, I didn't know anything about pitching when I started the game because I always was a shortstop or a second baseman, so I was always listening to guys like that about pitching, what they are looking for in pitchers, and and like Fish would. Uh, Bill Fisher would take those kids in Kansas City, and I remember we took a guy out of Mizzou, number one. He said he was a cutter, slider guy. No cutters, no sliders until you get this four-seam fastball. What? Well, that slider, that cutter's my pitch. When you can throw a four-seam fastball for a strike, we'll go to it, okay? That guy almost had a heart attack. Calling his agent, wait, hey, what the heck's going on? You know, and and so that's how pitching a lot was taught. You until you could command a forcing fastball, you weren't going to be throwing a bunch of other stuff coming up. So how we teach our how we teach these guys? They're, the the guys today are teaching them along these lines of what they're looking for. Bob Gibson went into a game. He didn't think about looking in the dugout in the fifth inning and wondering, I'm going to get the third time through the order. You know, it's like what they said. When Red would go out there in the mound, Bob would say, what are you doing out here? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, you know, they were trained so much differently that, uh, you know, so the game when you these guys can't get through the third time in the order, the hell, they're not trained that way in the minor leagues either. Yeah, they're teaching them, those guys the same thing. Get through the first two two uh, two times through the order. If you can do that, you'd be a hell of a starter. Yeah, 
Martin, have you noticed in, in terms of evaluation, and I'm talking about where a veteran eye, the, the trained eye, which you certainly have, you know, when you see a pitcher and he may lack command, do you see how they could, how that aspect of it, the game is kind of analyzed? Is it, I mean, it, analytics does a lot, but can guys improve their command, you know, eat more easily? Or if a guy, because when you're teaching heavy velocity, you may not have command. You may just be, hey, he's got movement, velocity. It, you know, if he's up yeah. in his own, so be it. How do you kind of break it down with the trained eye? I think, I think you know, I mean, I think you can improve command. There's guys that's going to throw hard. They'll, their delivery or the way they release the ball, they're never going to throw strikes, you know. And there's guys that we've seen for years, you know, coming up that just just because they have a big arm doesn't mean they're going to be able to throw strikes. And so, you know, some guys can do it and some guys can't. But it's it's also how you train these guys to throw. It goes back to, like I said, as far as being able to command stuff. And now they're trying to throw as hard as they possibly can. And we've made no – if you see the deliveries of these guys these days, there, there are almost no deliveries. They, I mean, they basically start in a, almost a set position and throw. There's no more over the top like Wayno or you see these guys are in the older pitchers that got loaded up with their back turned to the plate and get a good load and let it fly. And their arms were, you know, I mean, they were used to that. And they were trained to throw 200 or 250 innings. But these guys are not trained to do that now. They're, I mean, as far as looking at these guys and trying to figure out who's going to uh, who's going to throw strikes and not or not. To me, velocity is with the you know we've had radar guns for a long time, but now they're on TV and it, it's just it's just something that. That people love to see. They love to see how hard they're throwing. The guys, the young kids coming up, they like to see how hard they're throwing. You know, guys used to be pitchers. Now we got so many throwers that we're trying to make pitchers out of. And so you have to be a special guy. You have to be intelligent enough to be able to take uh, a pitching coach and be able to teach him a breaking ball or, or something else that goes with it. It's just not velocity. And, and you can see how many of these guys are getting hurt because they're just blowing out their arms. I mean, they're blowing out their arms before they get to, into professional baseball or to college. How many of these guys at Tommy John's in high school? Yeah, I mean, you never heard anything like that back in the day. What do you think that is? Is it just velocity? Is it bad mechanics with velocity? Because the I kids think, are stronger. They're, the training yeah, is yeah, the training yeah. is there. The training is there, but is this training going to be long-term health? You know, I mean, I wonder about the training. Is the training now better than, than it was before? Yes, they throw harder, for sure. But we also have a radar gun that everybody, you know, is looking at. We, you know, velocity, I remember reading uh, Steve Carlton, who Chase Riddle signed, uh, saying on the cover of Sports Illustrated that velocity is a distant distant third to location and movement. And that always hung with me, you know. Velocity, you got to have location and movement on the ball, you know. If you throw 100 miles an hour and straight as a string, a lot of these guys are going to hit it. And when they hit it, the reaction of the ball, that's why the ball flies. And you know, the ball the ball is a whole other story. But... Um, that's part of it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I could talk this aspect all day, but I want to move to to some of the guys that you you were responsible for for our audience. Marty was part of signing Vince Coleman, Lance Johnson, Danny Cox, Luis Alicia, and as a director of scouting, he was responsible for the drafting of Rick Ankeel, Dan Harron, Matt Morris, Placido Polanco, Jason Mott. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Vince Coleman because he's he's someone that, you know, really oh, exciting you know. player in his day, the stolen base, the, the pure hit. You know, what, how'd you kind of come upon him and and talk yeah. about that kind of player today, especially when the shift's going to be <laughs> going the other way? Yeah, that was a special guy. I, you know, I went to Florida State University, 
and we played Florida and M. And I played against Dawson uh, back in the day. He and I are, I guess, is around the same age. But uh, you know, we would play them once every year. But uh, and a friend of mine that I there was a football. I hung out with a lot of the football players because I was a football player. My best friend was all American at FSU as a guard. So I, I spent a lot of time with football players. I lived in their dorm. Uh, so one of the friend of mine was a backup coordinator, uh, Mark Orlando, back up to Gary Huff oh, wow. at FSU. So Huff was a baseball player too, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he, uh, I was scouting, and I, I I stayed in touch with him. And he was living in Tallahassee. And he got a job over at Florida A and M, and I'd go over there and see games over when I got to Tallahassee. Every once in a while, whatever, you know, as far as just checking out. And, you know, the coach, we never got much information from A&M, the coach, whatever, about the players. So uh, he called me, you know, at the beginning of the season. He said, you know, we've got a hell of a punter on this team. This guy named Vince Coleman. He's, his brother, his uh, cousin is uh, Greg Coleman, who's with the punter with the Minnesota Vikings. And uh, so – he said, he's a baseball player, too. He can really run. You ought to come see this guy. So I got, I was in Tallahassee looking at FSU, and I said, shoot, man, I'm going to ride over and see this cat. And I go over there, and, look, and I'm thinking, oh, man, what a you know, great body on him, you know, for what I'm looking. We were, <laughs> of course, you got to go back to what we were in St. Louis, 1981. We are playing in Bush Stadium on turf, Ozzy. We had these friggin', you know, switch hitters. We, we had Whitey Herzog, great start of a team. And so I'm looking at Vince, and I'm thinking, God damn, this guy, you know. So, of course, he runs the first. I said, oh, I didn't need a watch to realize that I could fly. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he was a little crude, and uh, and somebody give me, you know, I don't know if I, he had been drafted by Philadelphia the year before, but didn't sign so I kind of did a little digging, and I kind of got some talk. Oh man, he's not a good guy. This is somebody, you know. That's why they didn't sign him. Whatever. So I went and saw him, liked him, and uh, and so what happened was my boss was in town. He, he my boss is Fred McAllister, an all time scouting director for the Cardinals. He worked sixty years with the Cardinals as a scout and a player. But he came in. I came, I brought him in to see uh, Jeff Ledbetter at FSU, and the reason I brought him in to see Jeff Ledbetter was to tell him this guy's going to be a number one pick. But I'm going to tell you, I don't want him number one. I don't think he's going to play in the big leagues, and he's not our kind of player. Just so he would see him when he went drafted way early, that he would know. Hey, I saw this guy. I didn't like him either. Well, he didn't like him either. So I told him. Uh, <laughs> You know, I had a day game, and I he never saw any of my players that were low round picks. He I, he would come, he would come into town, and spend five or six days with me looking at the best players. He say, put the best five or six guys on your list that are on your list, the highest guys, and let's see those guys, and then you put the rest of them where you want. So I had him. I wanted him to see lead better. And I said, hey, I'm going over to the A&M this afternoon, a one o'clock game, and I'm going to go see a kid over there. But I didn't. I said, you don't have to come. I said, I'll come back and pick you up about four, and we'll go to the FSU game. He says, oh, hell, I'll, I'll go with you, you know. So he goes with me, and he sees Colton. So I don't go to the draft back then, you know. He was a one-man show. It was him at the draft, and that was it. And so he drafted him, and uh, – 10th round, and uh, it, it really was amazing. How we got him also was that I was driving back from Alabama, going through Tallahassee, and I wanted to work him out because I wanted to see if he could switch hit. We had a bunch of switchers, Tommy Herr. Uh, we had uh, uh, Ozzy, uh, Oberfeld. And so we had a bunch of switch hitting. We had a great switch hitting program in our minor leagues as well, George Kissel. And so I'm thinking if this guy can hit left-handed the way he can run, and he's so crude right now, I know he's a great athlete. 
uh, you know, he's got a chance to be, you know, pretty good ball player. Plus, I was we ended up getting him in the tenth round, I think, and didn't give him much money. But uh, the first thing we did was he went out to he signed he signed originally with us in the tenth round, not much money. He went to Johnson City, batted right-handed. I don't think he hit, but about two fifty or sixty, stole a bunch of bases. And then we brought him to the Instruction League, which I worked every year with George Kissel in St. Pete and worked on his switch hitting. We had a switch hitting program with him and all the other guys that were switch hitters in that group. And the next year, we sent him to Macon. We had seven minor league, uh, seven minor league teams at the time, three A clubs. And so we sent him to the lowest league to start. He hit 350 and stole 145 bases. So he got, you know, got some recognition that at that point and uh, then went right to AAA with uh, uh, oh, our third baseman, too. God, and uh, they both went to AAA together. And then he was in the big leagues, you know, in 85 was his rookie year. And he was a rookie of the year, obviously, but uh, had a great career after that. Yeah, no doubt, <laughs> no doubt. That was a, that was a good one you got there. I can't, you know, when you I, for our audience, they probably just think at tenth round you get a talent like that in the tenth round, but it, it showed the value of scouting back then. Um, Marty, Dave's got a question for you here. Jump on in, Dave. Yeah, I, I told you, Marty. I always break in on Joe's interviews when he's <laughs> sailing, and I ask a selfish question. Here, here's one from my end. I was a switch hitter as a college player and a, and a minor leaguer. And both of them are, are, our boys are switch hitters too. And I, I think it's invaluable. Do you see it as a, as the game gets more into the platooning and the analytics? Do you see that as a, as maybe something kids should get into more hitting lefty righty if they can, and then share a little bit about what that's, that secret training was like, uh, what were some things they were doing? Yeah, I think it'd be great. I think it's great. And I think it's great to learn early. The earlier you do it, the better. Um, yeah, it's it's really you know for all you if you looked at those clubs we had I mean you guys those clubs we had uh, third baseman shortstop second baseman center fielder left fielder all switch hitters and so you know those guys never came out of the lineup uh, I think it's a total advantage if you can do it and the training part was basically George Kissel had started this years ago and he had started the, this program a switching hitting program of building up the opposite arm strength with taking a, there was a lot of things. Luis Alice, you know, who's another switch hitter we had on that club. Uh, they all went through the same program of, of laying on their back with a little uh, kind of a small sledgehammer and working the opposite arm across their body, strengthening the opposite arm instead of your, if you're right-handed, you're right, uh, right-handed hitter, that right hand, top hand is that strong hand. And it's the same thing left-handed. So if you're a right-handed hitter naturally, if you want to switch it, you've got to develop that top hand strength of crossing it over like you're swinging a bat. And swinging a bat, and we made him swing a bat a lot, you know, uh, a lot of left-handed uh, soft toss and tee work like that to strengthen, you know, that stroke of uh, being able to uh, complement it. And, uh, you know, it was it was something we had a lot of success with uh, in the minor leagues, uh, teaching these guys. And some guys can do it and some guys don't. I, I took a kid out of Miami years ago, Jason Wolf, who was an unbelievable athlete. He could fly like Vince Coleman, but he didn't have the makeup of Vince Coleman. We tried to make him a switcher and probably turn him into a, a class A ball player because he, he could never hit left-handed. And by the time we got him back right-handed, he was not the same guy, but it doesn't work for everybody. And you've got to dedicate yourself to it. But uh, I think it's a total advantage. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That, to me, switch hitting is, is what I have a problem uh, Marty with is when catchers are switch hitters, because ca the grind of catching itself is so difficult. And so, and, and catchers usually have a struggle to hit anyway. That right. They make it harder by being a switch hitter. Some can pull it right, off. Right, right, but, right. Uh, you, boy, you better really, in my opinion, be really special, you know, to, 
to be able to pull out switch hitting from behind the plate. Don't tell Tanner that, Joe, my 13-year-old. He's a switch hitting catcher right now. Well, hey, if he wants to get Joe, into the big leagues. Yeah. See, uh, you say under that, see Ted Simmons. Yeah. Well, I understand, <laughs> but there's – I also Yeah, see, no, there ain't any Ted Simmons out there. <laughs> yeah. no, no, it doesn't happen. It's a, yeah, it's a difficult task because you got so much involved in catching to begin with. And then to add that into it, but it's, you know, the, the work ethic and, you know, that's, you know, when we're scouting and, and, and scouting is so much about learning about the player. I had a lot of workouts uh, when I was an area scout. My workouts were more involved, not so much in teaching players new stuff, but was learn, teach, seeing it, how they, the, what kind of uh, student they are can they learn can you show them something a little bit different try it out just as not so much to see if they could do it and just see you know are they capable of you know how flexible are these guys and you know how smart are they can they do learn to adjust in a different way and really that the reason i drafted vince coleman because i wanted to know if he could switch hit or not and this, and when I came through Tallahassee on my way to work him out, he said, I can't work out because I'm doing the, uh, I had my finals that week. I said, well, I just wanted to, you know, have a workout. I didn't even talk to him about switch hitting, but I just said, I wanted to be around your workout. And he said, well, can you come in back? He lived in Jacksonville. He says, Do you, would you come back to Jacksonville? I said, no, I'm done. This is my last week. I'm, I'll be in Hollywood, Florida. I said, this is my number. If you want to come down there and work out for me in Hollywood, come on down, man. And a week later, or a couple of days later, he calls me up. He says, is that still on? I said, yeah. He drove from Jacksonville to Hollywood. And worked out over Boggs Field. I got a buddy of mine who's a roofer who I played baseball with in high school. Put him at first base. I said, I wanted to see if he could play shortstop because I knew he wasn't a very good hitter to begin with. After he bounced every ball over there, I said, go out in center field. <laughs> Hit him some balls out there. But I wanted to see if he could switch hit. And Whitey had told me this a long time ago about switch hitters and what to look for. The biggest thing is fear. And so it was, you know, I, I had a plan. I said, get up there. He hit right-handed for a little. I said, you ever switch hit? He said, no, nah, I never tried it. I said, get up left-handed. Let me see what it looks like. I said, take a couple swings. He took a nice little short stroke. I said, I'm going to throw a couple in here and see what it looks like. He said, okay. I threw one right down the middle. He, he hit a little ground ball short. Threw another one right down the middle, and he hit a line drive to short. I said, yeah, okay. The next thing Whitey told me to do is – Throw this next one right at him. The key to switch hitting is can you see the ball? So I threw it right at him. Not, not hard, but it might have hit a little inside. He jumped out of the way. The, ne the, key, the next key is the next pitch. So I threw the one right down the middle. He hit a line drive to left field. And I'm saying, this guy can switch it. He's, he's not afraid of the ball, and he's an athlete. And when I called my boss that and told him that, I think that's how I ended up getting him. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's a good thing you threw inside. <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah. That one little, that one little well, little. no, that's what I that's what I done that. I did that before the guys and and they jumped out of the way. No, I know, like, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. You're saying. Yeah, it's just obviously uh, you you want to take all the red flags out, but it is fun and, and uh, you know this I hope it's valuable to our especially our young listeners and 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 older listeners that they get an insight on how that process is and and just kind of the making of a ball player and you know clearly got a making of a guy who what he stole 100 bags or close to it at some point in his career um marty i want to pivot a little bit he talk about another... the first four years i think five years in a row yeah yeah exactly um <laughs> i want to talk a little bit about dan Heron because he's a guy i covered and, I, and here's a pitcher who really reinvented himself because you probably had him as a hard thrower at the end of his career, he was, you know, mm -hmm. barely to 90, and uh, but was always getting guys out, and his and his aptitude is just off the charts. Yeah, yeah. I think I was living in California at the time when we took him, um, and he was, 
what a good looking, <laughs> good looking pitcher. They had two guys on that team too. They had another guy, a left-handed pitcher. I can't think of his name who went in front of Heron, a uh, left-handed pitcher. And, uh, and, it, and I really liked him as well, but, uh, Dan, you know, he was just a big body guy. He looked, he was everything we we're looking for. And, and pitching is, was so important to us to begin with, you know, as far as it's so important period. But, uh, it, I, I, one of my philosophies of, of scouting as, as a scouting director is if you got pitching, you can get whatever you want. So I drafted a lot of pitchers. And one year, I, I think my first year, I took 10 out of the first 12 pitchers. We traded about four or five of them to uh, Oakland to get Mark McGuire, Stottlemyre, and the guys that we eventually brought into St. Louis. But pitching was, you know, to me, uh, key to, uh, you know, if you had pitching, you could, you could do anything. And Dan was just such a great guy. Uh, personality-wise, uh, big-body guy. He was tough. He threw hard. He had good stuff, good makeup. You know, just the kind of guy, a guy like Matt Morris, you know, uh, who really, I, you know, they reminded me a lot of each other. And uh, just a guy who not only had good stuff but had a good feel for the game. Yeah. Yeah, and um... – yeah, like I said, when he's the guy who reinvented himself, when is when he lost the velocity? You know yeah. how how rare is that to see a guy kind of have basically two careers? You know, right. because he has to kind of make the adjustments because of physical uh, ability to to have to manipulate the ball differently. Well, that's how these guys. I mean, the the good ones. That I mean, you don't have that velocity forever. You know, Wayno is a perfect example. I don't think he ever threw bullets, but. Uh, you know, these, you know, guys like that. And I think Dan got around a lot of good pitching people here in St. Louis. And I think that really being around Dunk and Dunk loved this guy. Uh, and, and Dave, I thought, was one of the better, better pitching coaches I'd ever been around uh, in the game. And uh, and Dan was just a tough, tough guy, man. And he was a tough guy who was great makeup and, you know, those kind of guys find a way to get it done. And, um, and he had a great career. I was really proud of what he did. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk to you about one thing that was, um, uh, they talk about your, uh, Walt Jockety because I, I remember the first year, um, Oh, Dave, a uh, message had Noah Lowry. Was that the teammate you're talking about? That's him. Yeah. That was him. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to Dave for, uh, Noah Lowry and Pepperdine. I yeah. couldn't have pulled it up. Yeah. And <laughs> in San Francisco or something told him. And I had I had a deal with him for like, I don't know, a million bucks or something like that. And uh and and I, I didn't tell those guys. I didn't want to influence them taking him or leaving him because I could have I could have taken him and not passed on him to the game. But uh well there was a good that was a great a pretty good combination. Noel never did what he that Dan did, but uh, he was a good-looking pitcher, too, on that same club. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, like I was getting at with, with Jockety, I go back to 2002 was my first year covering the Marlins at MLB.com, and the in uh, 03, of course, the Marlins win the World Series. They had the winter meetings. I didn't go to the 02 winter meetings because we were still kind of getting our footing. We didn't, you know, coverage was a little different. We avoided the strike. Remember that year? Yeah, yeah, uh, and, yeah. and all that stuff. Oh, three. Oh, you know, New Orleans is where the winter meetings are. And this is a classic. So let's talk about your old boss and Walt Jockety. The hotel bar. Uh, you had Walt Jockety and John Sherholtz were sitting at the hotel bar in front of 100 reporters, oh, uh, piano player in the corner. And they were <laughs> orchestrating a J.D. Drew, Eli Marrero, to the Braves for for Adam Wainwright, Jason Marquis, and Ray King <laughs> to St. Louis. You know, and I guess like that was my first winter meeting, so I just kind of thought that was normal. But I remember seeing them sitting there, you know, just engaged oh where goodness. no one was approaching. Them. You, tell them, right. you know, so that was take us oh to that, and, uh, and you probably saw a lot of days mm. where that type of stuff went on at the winter meetings. 
Yeah, yeah. Those weaning meetings back then, you know, I, I heard you guys talking about Jack McKee and the, the group. I mean, Trader Jack and those winter meetings back then were something. I, you know, I, they've never been the same, I don't think. Uh, and I, maybe I'm more prejudiced because of my age, but um, yeah, Jockety, you know, we had some great uh, meetings. So, you know, he was really a great, a really good general manager. His personality, allowed him he was he was a sharp guy but he utilized the people around him he really surrounded himself with a different group that you know of of uh, veteran uh, scouts coaching coaches that totally trusted him and they he trusted them and he he really worked off that whole whole uh, premise each year at the at the meetings and I, I can see that totally happening, you know, when we did make that deal about uh, JD and Wayno. But it, may, it makes you brought up uh, that point, and a, a perfect example is a guy you t- we had uh, just talked about was Dan Heron. When we were in the meetings in uh, Louisville, I think years ago, uh, Jock and he calls me up to the room. I was in the lobby somewhere. He says, Hey, we got something going. Come on up here. And so I come up there and out was when I was walking in, Kevin Towers was walking out. He was a San Diego. Yeah. And I know Kevin forever. Good friends. And he says, Oh, wow. We probably won't make this deal now. And he closed the door. I'm thinking, What's going on? Well, he says, Oh, we're thinking about making a deal. And he says, uh, uh, <laughs> he says, I said, what? He says, all our guys in there, Mike Jorgensen, uh, Jerry Walker uh, are in there. Mo, who was, this, you know, kind of on his way up at that time, was there too, John Moselock. So he says, uh, we're thinking about training Dan Heron. He's in double A to... Uh, California for Brett Tomko. I don't know who where Tomko was, but I think it was California. So it was a California team. I said, Brett Tomko for Dan Heron? I said, really? They said, yeah. I said, are you kidding? I wouldn't trade he, I wouldn't trade Brett this guy for Brett Tomko. I know Brett Tomko. He's a Florida Southern guy to begin with. I'd seen him since he was in college. I said, there's no comparing. This guy is the best guy in our organization right now coming up. I said, did anybody call Mark Riggins, our pitching coach? He says, hey, Mo, get on the phone. Call call Riggins. We get him on the speaker. Say, hey, Riggins, we're thinking about trading Brett Tomko. Uh, Van Heron for Brett Tomko. He's, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, oh, no, no, whoa, whoa, no, no. Uh, he, he, he is our prized possession right <laughs> and boom, it was over. <laughs> that was it. And just like uh, when I walked down said stairs, I saw towers. He says, "We still got a chance." I said, "No." <laughs> <laughs> so Jockety was a really smart guy who utilized the people around him, who could get information that he couldn't or didn't, and. He just utilizes people so well, and he just, you know, he did just a tremendous job uh, here in St. Louis, and uh, he was just a great guy to work for and one of my best friends. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Marty, we could, we could talk forever, but uh, we're pushing for time. Um, I'm going to bring Dave in if he has any last questions. He'll make final sure. announcements, and then we'll, we'll get out of here. But, uh, you know, I hope that our listeners really, you know, got – to get a real feel for for this industry and and marty thanks for all this great insight uh dave what you got for him yeah and, and marty you're gonna have to share you can share it on the air off the air but i heard about george's little black book on, on baseball that he had down there through dan jennings coming uh, up so. <laughs> you get you got a little bit of that i'd love to hear but uh no thanks for coming on the, the tips about switch hitting were phenomenal uh, we try to push that a lot down where we're at and we have right. a lot of kids listening 10,000 subscribers, 46 countries right now, grassroots programs all over the world. 
are listening to the wisdom today. And we appreciate you that you just opened up and shared with us. Uh, people got a lot out of it. Well, um, I really appreciate you bring, having me on. I uh, really enjoyed talking to you guys. Uh, Joe, I've known a long time. And uh, David, it's great meeting you and, and talking to you as well. Uh, you guys have a fantastic program. So many of the people you've had on this show before, I've known very well for a long time. And and highly recommended uh, that I do this. So um, I, I, I really enjoyed it, and uh, thanks for having me on. Oh, one, one thing, uh, Dave, let me uh, – Marty, yeah. I, I tell you, we're going to have you on back. We're going to have you back, and we're going to – I want to really break down George Kessel. And really, because oh. every – I know that's a, that My he father. is an institution <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm even going to do more research on George, but everyone mentions him, you know, one of the godfathers of scouting and development. And, and we're going to really break that down. If you're agreeable, Marty, we'll do that in a couple of months. Okay. sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> right, Seems to be a common denominator to a lot of the great scouts like Marty out there. So yeah, I think it's a great idea. Marty, how can we support you or what, are, what things are you working on? Or are you on social media anywhere where our, our fan base can find you. No. <laughs> hey, good for you, brother. I used to be the <laughs> when I started this podcast. <laughs> I can barely get on my Facebook. <laughs> You're better off for it. You're better off for it. Well, to our, our audience out there, 10,000 of you guys, continue to download, listen, like, subscribe. Leave us notes, good or bad, we read them. Uh, we've got all good ones, so no, no bad ones so far. Uh, but uh, continue to do that. If you guys want to support this particular show, Man on Second, on the Real Voices of the Game production, please go to patreon.com. Joe's gives us great content every week. He brings it. His guests are phenomenal. Top-of-the-line guests giving us great information. Please support him on that particular website. And then for our followers, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, keep following us. Uh, I'm also posting videos of stuff that we're doing with kids so people can get real live examples of ways that they can help their young players out too on my on our facebook page and instagram so keep supporting us there joe thanks again for a great show man on second is a phenomenal piece on our network gets great results and marty i just can't say enough thanks so much for coming on and sharing with us today all right stay with us after the music here and we'll, we'll bring this is real voice of the game productions with man on second episode 106 in total